This morning found in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 7, as we continue our exposition of the Gospel of Mark, straight talk about Jesus Christ. We'll read verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7 this morning in the Gospel of Mark. Let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defile, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, when they, uh, they do not eat unless they wash, and there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, uh, pictures, pitchers, um, copper vessels, and couches, then the Pharisees and scribes ask him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men." The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. You you may be seated. Remember how Jesus had compassion on the multitude of the 5,000 men and we're told there was more women and children. So a large multitude, maybe 10, 15,000 or more people. They were hungry. They'd been out following Jesus all day. They were out in the countryside. They weren't close to a town. And it was late in the afternoon. We, we uh, studied that. We came across that in the exposition in Mark chapter 6. What did Jesus do? Jesus prayed and asked God's blessing upon the, uh, the few uh, morsels of, of uh, bread and fish that were there. Neither Jesus nor his apostles practiced ritual hand washing following the man-made religious traditions during that event and the feeding of the multitude or in their daily lives. So I want you to make the connection. I hope you did in chapter 7. With the opening here of chapter 7. About the dispute over the rituals of washing. Jesus had just fed this multitude. He didn't go through the ritual of washing his hands. Neither did his uh, apostles when they distributed the food. But also in their daily lives. Jesus as a noted rabbi. As a distinguished and, and identifiable rabbi and teacher. Did not follow the traditions of the elders of the scribes and the interpretations that had been handed down. He didn't teach his disciples and did not require his apostles to do the same thing. And so he was spied out. And once again, he is accosted by the Jewish religious establishment over his rejection of man-made traditions that violate the revealed word of God. This has already happened, if you'll remember, back in Mark chapter 2. They came to him and they were disputing with him about fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? like we're taught to do, or even the disciples of John the Baptist were caught up in that. And Jesus rejected ritualistic fasting. Not that he said fasting is wrong. Jesus practiced fasting. We know that. But not according to the traditions and the rituals that are man-made that are an attempt at self-righteousness. And then there was also the dispute over the Sabbath. Jesus would not validate the rules and traditions that that were man-made that became a burden rather than a blessing For the Sabbath. And so what happened in response to Jesus rejecting these man-made traditions? 
Well, we read that the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him. How they might destroy him. Well, evidently among the multitudes that followed and flocked to Jesus, there were spies who were filling up the gossip lines back to Jerusalem. That brings us to chapter 7. And we've pointed out that we think that the uh, chapter and verse divisions are, are very useful. And I believe here we find that also in chapter 7. I mentioned that last week, and as we go on, I gave you an overview of chapter 7, but we'll go through chapter 7 and see that there is a a focused theme, uh, I believe, that Mark gives us here in chapter 7 that is continuing the progression of the revelation of the gospel. Here in chapter 7, the gospel purifies from the corruption of external man-made religious traditions of self-righteous rules and rituals. And the gospel of the new covenant clarifies the internal transformation of the soul by saving faith. And this comes down then to that conflict that is, that is revealed throughout scripture of self-righteousness by law works versus God's righteousness by grace faith. This is not a new teaching that Jesus is bringing. It's a restored teaching of, of the covenant of grace and of redemption. We're breaking down this chapter, and we're we're looking in the section of verses 1 through 16. We won't be able to cover all of those verses. Uh, We'll have to do it a little bit at the time. But in verses 1 through 16, Jesus preached the law word of God. He quotes from Isaiah and applies it. Jesus preached from the law word of God and applied the new covenant gospel by first clarifying that sin is sourced in the human heart. You see, that's an essential message. It's a central message from Scripture. I pointed it out to you this morning in Psalm 119. And so throughout the revealed Word of God, over and over it's made known to us that sin is sourced in the human heart. And that must be clarified in terms of the law Word of God. The, the law is to be used lawfully in preaching and believing the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But man-made rules and rituals of outward washing cannot purify the corruption of the sin-hardened heart shown in all manner of self-righteousness disguised as religious piety. As we go on in these verses, you're going to see that Jesus is going to bring an example. He brings an example out of the Decalogue of the Fifth Commandment. And he points out how there is this corruption of sin-hardened hearts under the guise of religious piety. So we will get there. But this morning we look at verses 1 through 4. The ritualistic washing in dispute. It's not about basic hygiene or cleanliness. It's about the false beliefs that man-made rituals and rules of external religious practices can affect personal righteousness and holiness. You cannot be righteous by your own works. Even your fastidious care of law works made up by a list of man-made rules, you can never Impute righteousness to yourself based on your works. You need an alien righteousness. You need a righteousness that's outside of you. You need a righteousness of one who kept the law without fault and who was born without the guilt of original sin. That's only Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so look at verses 1 through 4 here in chapter 7. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. 
when they come from the marketplace. They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold like the washing of cups and pitchers and uh, uh, copper vessels and couches. And so we see that this ritualistic washing that's in dispute, it's not about basic hygiene or cleanliness. It's not like we teach our children, well, wash your hands before you come to the dinner table or before you, you know, eat. We just have a practice of hygiene that way. But that's not what this is about. This is about false beliefs that man-made rituals and rules of external religious practices, a certain way of washing your hands with a certain kind of water or, or some other certain kind of gesture or outward practice can affect personal righteousness and holiness. Now, I want to look closely at these verses and I want to point some things out to you. In verse 2, we read that... Uh, the dispute was that they eat bread with common, that is with defiled, um, unwashed hands. Uh, the idea of defilement here, we think of that word defilement, we think of it as, man, I mean, their hands must have been crusty with germs or, or dirt or something. You know, maybe, maybe they had been out cleaning fish and they had fish guts all over their hands, sorry. That's not what the idea is here. No, the idea is that they were common. That's an important thing to point out. Uh, this word that's used here is actually the same word that's used to distinguish the um, Greek of the New Testament called koine. I used to teach my Greek students that koine Greek is different than Attic Greek, which is classical Greek or modern Greek and so forth. And I would use an illustration that I think may have become uh, obsolete because I would, see, I would say, think of coins in your pocket. Koine Greek. It's common. It's every day. It's the kind of thing that you use day in and day out. So this was the common Greek of the era. So what's being said here is that it was a common practice. It was a common part of life. They eat their hand, they eat their bread with common hands. They haven't gone through the ritual. That's what's being pointed out here. This description is important in the context to contrast the religious man-made traditions from common lifestyles that do not violate God's commands and teachings revealed in Scripture. I want to emphasize that. I want you to get this very clearly. Jesus and his disciples in many ways lived a common life, a common lifestyle. And when it comes to this matter of eating a meal and not going through the ritual of a specific way of, of ritualistic washing, they didn't practice that. Jesus didn't teach that. He rejected that. And over and over we find Jesus has contact with the common people. That was one of the things noticed about him. Some celebrated it, others uh, uh, scorned it. Oh, he's a commoner. He's like the common people. But that should register with us. And so there are common aspects of lifestyle that do not violate the commands and the teachings of Scripture. And it's important that we know that and that we see that. Going on in verses 2 through 4, uh, you'll see that the reference is to they had unwashed hands. Now, this is, again, presumed to be uh, unwashed in terms of being, as I said, common. Uh, but common in reference to not something that is ceremonially set apart. This description is important in the context to contrast qualifying these religious man-made traditions not to be confused with New Covenant baptism. That, that's important as we go on down through this context. I want to point that out to you. I'm going to spend some time talking about it. That we're not to confuse New Covenant baptism as a ritual of external uh, uh, practice that can bring self-righteousness. 
You need to understand that. So this description of their having unwashed and, and common hands is important for our grasping what's going on here because we go on to read that these fastidious Pharisees and scribes and those who hold to the traditions of the elders and those who were, were going about trying to establish their own righteousness by law works, by man-made traditions of interpretation, of trying to so um, explain away the law of God from their original sin to works that they could do externally to purify themselves, to cleanse themselves, to, to be self-righteous, that in this way they washed in a special way. Did you see that in verse 2, that unless they come and, and wash their hands in a special way, I'm sorry, that's verse 3, unless they come and, and wash their hands in a special way, um, that uh, they, they don't eat, that they say that it's, uh, it's corrupt, it's defilement. You need to understand something very important here. There's sort of a cryptic description washed in a special way it's the way it's it's translated in my scriptures literally it's washed with the fist and i say it's a little bit cryptic because there's several ways that people have tried to explain that we don't know if it means that they had to cut the water and they had to wash their hand thoroughly in one cup of you know from their hand their fist had to be washed some suggest that it meant washing up to their elbow i kind of think of doctor scrubbing up you know and so there was something that was very ritualistic, specific. Not about just making your hands clean. It was about having to go through the ritual. And I want you to think of something here. What was being talked about was not just common hand washing. <coughs> what is being described is a mode. They had to practice a certain mode of washing their hands, somehow described as washing with the fist. Please think about that. The emphasis is not on just general, you know, getting, getting some dirt off your hands. It's not pouring some water in. And, no, it's about going through the steps, going through the prescription of a particular mode. It has to be hands washed this way. And that's what is being focused on. That's what Mark is explaining to us around the context of what's happening with Jesus here. And so he goes on to say, and I pointed out in, the, in your study notes that different words are being used that are translated wash here. That's important because we're going to look at some other scriptures that employ these same words. But now we come to the last part of verse 3 and another word is being used. I'm sorry, verse 4. I'm getting my verses mixed up. We come to verse 4 when they come from the marketplace and a different word is being used here. Twice in verse 4 the word uh, baptizo is being used. And of course, that's a word that we normally associate with baptism, but it has a broader generic use, which is really important. The word baptizo is not a one-dimensional word that only means to dip or to immerse. It, 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 supported by the generic use, it means more than that. It's a broader term than that. And that's why I'm trying to emphasize to you that the, the objection of what's happening here is the outward focus on a man-made tradition that involves a certain mode. You've got to wash your hands in this particular prescriptive way so it's not about just you know washing your hands it's a ritual that is externally practiced with the idea that it will give you internal righteousness so these several greek words are used to describe the man-made religious tradition of ritualized washings of various things in verse 4, you can see it's washing hands, washing utensils for eating, or washing uh, drinking utensils, or cooking a copper vessel, or even washing furniture like a couch. 
And it's given a negative review of external rules that become more elaborate and detached from common everyday life to the extent that they become so fastidious that if they even go into the marketplace and may have walked where a Gentile walked or they may have rubbed up against uh, a Gentile in the marketplace, in the crowd that was there, that when they come back from the marketplace, they take a bath. They bathe themselves from head to toe. Maybe they uh, dip themselves in water. They might. Or whatever manner in which this elaborate, detached practice is an attempt to try to maintain a separation and a man-made self-righteousness that says, I'm not defiled by these common sinners. Remember that was something that was often said about Jesus. We know who you are. We know your mother. We know your father. We already saw that in the uh, book of Mark where there was a question uh, about um, his mother's reputation. We know who you are. We know who your mother is. You're a common sinner. So I want you to see where this goes in terms of becoming more elaborate and more detached to the point that it was beyond everyday life and to the common everyday people it became oppressive, burdensome and unattainable with a false guilt. What did Jesus say? You bind these burdens upon the conscience of people and you don't even lift a little finger in reference to them to make yourself look better to try to prove yourself more holy to try to maintain your self-righteousness Basically, Jesus says you will spit and step on other people for your own self-righteousness. But then what happens in terms of this selfishness, this pride, and this double standard? Out of all these rules and regulations, loopholes develop. Loopholes that are for the initiated. You will not lift so much as a little finger, but you explain it away. Jesus is going to get to that in the context when he talks about the fifth commandment. You're so fastidious that even when you go to the marketplace, if you have, if you have even walked on the ground where a Gentile walked, or if you've perhaps rubbed up against a, a Gentile in the marketplace, you'll go home and take a bath and wash your clothes and, and wash your couch. You're so fastidious about all this and so careful to detach yourself and so holier than thou against common people that you set about in your own self-righteousness And then you explain away the loopholes of the most basic of of, um, human charity regarding your own parents. So Jesus is going there and he's he's preaching with conviction against this false man-made rituals and rules of self-righteousness. And by the way, That hasn't gone away. We're still fighting the same battle. That's the conflict of the gospel in the world. That's what we talked about in the book of Mark and the straight talk about Jesus. The coming of the kingdom and the gospel of the kingdom and the conflict with sin in the world. So rules about ritualistic practices of washing are commonly found in false man-made religions. I know that you know one. Pontius Pilate symbolically washed his hands. It was a moral act. Do you remember that? He called for a basin. He washed his hands and said, I am, uh, I am clean of the blood of this innocent man. You take and do with him what you will. That was a moral act. So both non-Christian 
and in some various groups claiming to be Christian, there is still this corruption going on today, this corruption of man-made rules and rituals. However, the New Testament's consistent teaching is that New Covenant baptism is not to be confused as an external ritual of washing by mode. And that's one of the things I want to emphasize this morning to you. And as we look at scriptures where the various words are used, you see, New Covenant baptism is not a ritual of self-righteousness. And the emphasis from the scriptures is not on a particular mode. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Now, let me give you a practical example. I often do this uh, when the dispute comes up about immersing, about pouring or sprinkling uh, the water in baptism. One of the examples I use is that when I baptize, it's my common practice, I'll cut my hand in the water and I'll dip my hand all the way in the water. I'll bring the water out, I'll pour it, and then at the end, I'll sprinkle what's remaining from my fingers. So I'm covering all the bases. Dipping, pouring, and sprinkling. But you see, the emphasis is not on mode. I cannot overemphasize for you to please get this straight. Remember, the the, the scribes, the Pharisees, they had a prescribed mode, a special way, the hand and the fist, a certain kind of washing. It wasn't that it was just being clean. It was that it had to be ritualistic. It had to be practiced a certain way. They had to follow the steps. They had to go through the prescribed mode of washing their hands. Nowhere in Scripture is there a prescribed mode for us regarding baptism. I'm going to show that to you. In the New Covenant, the sign and seal of saving union with Christ is by the Holy Spirit's regenerating power described by terms of soul washing that affect the conscience rather than the outward body. And so Peter writes and says in reference to the flood and the ark, he says, there is an antitype. Now, here is the fulfillment. Here is the reality behind the antitype of Noah and his family being saved through the waters of the flood. Christ is our ark of safety. Christ is our salvation. But what is it that, that uh, Peter says? It's a type of, uh, a type of baptism. And here is the antitype which now saves us, baptism. And yes, the word here is baptizo. But he goes on to explain Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I think what Peter is referencing here is not the outward and the often ritualistic washings and bathings from head to toe over guilty defilement. It is suggested that Peter might have been the primary source for Mark's writing his gospel. And so when I read what Peter says here, I think of what Jesus said and what Mark wrote about the context of Jesus rejecting the the ritualistic washings. And he says that when, when the scribes, Pharisees, when those most fastidious of the separatists come from the marketplace, they come and they have to bathe. They have to baptizo. They have to wash themselves thoroughly. Because they might have walked where a Gentile walked, or they may have rubbed shoulders with a Gentile. They may have been defiled. And that kind of external defilement drives them crazy. And they're seeking self-righteousness. And I think that's what Peter is referencing here. That Christian baptism, New Covenant baptism, is not to be associated with some kind of ritualistic practice of a mode. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience to God. What baptism means in terms of the antitype of the waters of the flood and and of its meaning in terms of the descriptions that's given to us in the New Testament. 
So it's not the outward and the often ritualistic washings and the bathing from head to toe because of the guilt of defilement. That's why we don't repeat baptism. Because baptism cannot save you. The outward administration of baptism. So we do not administer baptism over and over. Somebody comes and says, I've sinned grievously and, and I, I need forgiveness and I'm seeking forgiveness. Can I be rebaptized? You don't need to be rebaptized. Your baptism is a symbol of the sufficiency of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit through the grace of God and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. It doesn't need to be redone. Just like Jesus doesn't have to go back and be crucified again for you. You don't need to be rebaptized. Because that baptism is not made effectual because of its outward administration. The outward administration of baptism is symbolic of a greater reality, secret and unseen, that goes on within. And to whom that grace belongs... As our confession says, it is effectual. It doesn't need to be repeated. And so I want you to consider, again, where we have some of the same terms used uh, and some descriptive terms. The first one from Acts is a descriptive term. It's also used elsewhere that we'll see that has to do with the person of the Holy Spirit being described as poured out in fullness of the plenary power of Christ's resurrection. We just read that in 1 Peter 3.21, the answer of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The plenary power of the Holy Spirit means full and sufficient for the end's design. We're not equal to God. We cannot be uh, connected with God the same way the, the Son and the Spirit are in terms of that essential divinity. We are never deified. We never become God. But rather we have an ethical relationship with God, redeemed and restored and that it, in the transformation that will result in resurrection and glorification as given to us in pledge by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit's presence and power with us is full and sufficient for the designed ends and purpose of God's covenant. We're not lacking anything. Please understand that. There's a lot of confusion about trying to get more of the Holy Spirit and trying to uh, come up with ways and practices and rituals that will somehow bring more of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is full and sufficient in His presence with us as the gift of Christ. You can't go through man-made rituals to get more of the Holy Spirit. New Covenant baptism is not assigned by mode. Remember I talked to you about how the the scribes and Pharisees had this particular prescribed mode of how they were to wash their hands? Nowhere in the New Testament are we given baptism described to us as a mode. You have to do it this way. But it is a covenant sign and seal symbolized, listen to this, symbolized by water replacing blood. I want to shout that. Maybe you think I am shouting. But I, I want to get the point across, you see? New covenant baptism is not a sign by mode. What new covenant baptism is a sign and seal symbolized by water replacing blood. That ought to make us all want to shout. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians. In Him, that is in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God 
who raised him from the dead. The connection here in the reference to baptism is not a particular mode. It's to the symbolism of water taking the place of blood. The circumcision that comes from Christ in the the waters of baptism symbolizing the power and presence of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in such a way that it's replaced the old covenant sign of blood. And it's so important to get that. Romans chapter 6, Paul's writing a a similar thing. And so I, I just cannot stress it enough that new covenant baptism is not presented to us in Scripture by a prescribed mode, but rather by the symbolism of water replacing blood. And the new covenant, the new and better covenant with better promises and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a full and sufficient way of application of the imputed righteousness of Christ and our living union with Him. That's what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit means. Not that you have a little piece of God that you're deified, but rather that the ethical presence of the Holy Spirit is with you, full and sufficient in applying all the benefits of Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. Talk about preaching the gospel. That's the gospel and the good news of our salvation and the freedom from the guilt of sin and the condemnation of the law and the empowering of being made right with God And a transformation that now is strengthened even in this body and the death of the flesh and the union and living with Christ. And we still fight with sin. We still fight with sin. The remaining corruption in this body. But beloved, our hearts have been set free and our souls are liberated to know the forgiveness that we have in Christ. That's what we're talking about in terms of the importance of symbol conveying to us a reality and not being all entangled with an outward mode. So the symbolic use of water, not mode of baptism, represents the Holy Spirit's soul-washing power of new life. This is what was written for us in Titus chapter 3. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing. And I pointed out here similar words that are used, uh, or same root words that are used back in in Mark chapter 7. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So you get it. You understand here that what's being written is not the outward washing of the body, but the washing of regeneration. What the outward water symbolizes is only the reality that the Holy Spirit can affect. Only the Holy Spirit taking the benefits of Christ can wash your soul clean. No outward water can ever do that, no matter how it's administered. But it's a symbol. Water taking the place of blood because of the finished work of Christ and His all-sufficient blood. Now, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the washing within, the washing of regeneration that makes us new. That we're born from above. We're born again. So the symbolic use of water applied to the body outwardly, as explained by Scripture, is witnessed to by the Holy Spirit inwardly and effectually in the heart. To remove guilt from the conscience because of the promised mediation of Jesus Christ, giving hope through faith, not man-made religious rituals and rules 
of self-righteousness. So, yes, it is symbolic water. It is water that is administered outwardly, but it's explained to us by Scripture, and it's witnessed to by the Holy Spirit as effectual in our heart to remove the guilt from our conscience because of the promised mediation of Jesus Christ. I hope no one here this morning is confused that somehow outward baptism and the application of water outwardly to your body can wash away your sins. It cannot. It's a symbol of a greater reality to whom that grace belongs that your sins are effectually forgiven because of the mediation of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into your heart and mind, witnessing to what Jesus has done and your faith to trust Him for your salvation. And outward water baptism is a symbol of that. It's a beautiful symbol. It's a wonderful symbol. It's water that's taken the place of blood. And it's something we should rejoice in. We should remember our baptism. That's why I called you to remembrance this morning. You should remember your baptism. You don't need to be rebaptized again. Because outward baptism can't save your soul. But outward baptism is a sign and seal of the covenant promise of God in Jesus Christ. It's prescribed to us in Scripture to use water. Nowhere is there a particular mode given to us. The same words are used. Baptizo, to to wash thoroughly, to dip, to immerse, to sprinkle, and to, to pour. All those words are used in connection with baptism and the work of the Holy Spirit. So what if I came to you and I said, hey, I've got a good idea. I've got a better idea. Water baptism is just common. Everybody's doing that. Let's do something better. I know the Bible talks about oil. The Bible talks about anointing with oil. From now on, we're going to use oil. Rather than water, we're going to use oil in baptism. That'll be more special. That'll make it more special, won't it? Can't we do better? Water's common. Or how about this? How about um, something that maybe is a a little more uh, suggestive of the region in which we live? I know. Let's be baptized with sweet tea. Now, wouldn't that be an identity that would connect with people? Oh, we're in the South, and sweet tea's a thing, and so now we're going to be baptized in sweet tea. Or maybe there are some with, with, with a growing, urbane culture that we have. Maybe we'll be baptized in wine. Wine bars are springing up everywhere and wine snobs are coming out of the woodwork. Why don't we be baptized with wine? That would show we're really special. We're kind of a a step ahead. We're a little more refined. We're a little better than people who are just being baptized with common water. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't it shameful? I know some of you were like, I'm not sure if I should laugh at that or not. Because that's not funny. That's pretty scornful. It would be if we were serious. I don't even know. Maybe that has, maybe somebody has come up with that idea. I don't know. But don't you get what I'm saying? Why do we use water? I'll be honest with you. My view is water is to be used because Scripture says water. I don't think you can substitute anything else. Well, well, Pastor, what if we were out somewhere and, and there was no water, there was only sand, or there was only sap from trees? Couldn't we be baptized? No. Salvation is not so connected to baptism that you can't be saved without it. I would say you, you should tell whoever it is, and missionaries or whoever it is, let's wait till we find water. When we find water, then we'll baptize. That's what I believe. 
I do not believe we have the authority to try to make God's word better. I believe water is an important and beautiful sign of the replacement of blood. And I believe the emphasis is not on any particular mode that you have to be immersed or dipped or sprinkled in any particular fashion that is prescribed by men. But water is to be used with the words of institution that Jesus gave us. And baptism is only necessary to be administered once. I don't believe that uh, professed faith makes baptism valid. Although I have administered baptism to adults who have never been baptized in covenant and have come to faith in Christ, I trust their profession of faith and I've baptized adults. But I've also baptized children, the children of one or both believing parents in promise of God's covenant. And I am in full and good conscience believing obedience to Scripture because water has taken the place of blood and baptism has taken the place of circumcision. And so we don't make baptism more valid by anything we do. Baptism is valid because of the promise of God and because of the Word of God that says this is what baptism means. And what baptism means is manifest by the effectual working on the Holy Spirit to whom that grace belongs. I don't know who that grace belongs to. I am to be an obedient servant of Christ in administering baptism according to His promise and word in the New Covenant. And this is what we read in Romans chapter, or in Hebrews chapter 10. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure or clean water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Remember your baptism. Remember what your baptism means. You don't need to be rebaptized. Remember that your baptism represents the fullness of Christ's sacrifice in doing away with bloodshed, that water has taken the place of blood. That your baptism represents the Holy Spirit being poured out full and plenary in making application of the benefits of Christ. You're not lacking anything. You don't need to do something special to get more of the Holy Spirit. That the water of baptism represents a new birth and a living union with Christ. The water of baptism is multifaceted in its meaning from what Scripture teaches us, but it's not the water of baptism that can affect anything. It is the reality of the Holy Spirit within. And so that's what we believe, that's what we preach, that's what we hold on to in terms of what Scripture identifies for us of the mediation that Christ is our high priest. And we are livingly united to Him. And we have the evil conscience of the guilt of our sins sprinkled and covered with atonement. And just as our bodies had the application of external water, there is a greater reality of the Holy Spirit's washing away the guilt of our sin within. And I hope and believe that you understand the symbolism how the Lord condescends to give us a beautiful picture, just as He does in this Lord's Supper. We don't have any confusion, I hope we don't, that, that this bread and this cup change into anything other than juice or wine or bread, but it symbolizes a greater reality. 
I love using the illustration that when does this bread and when does this wine or juice become most real to you? When it passes beyond your external senses. Isn't that wonderful? When you take the bread, when you take the juice or the wine, it's not when you can see it or touch it or smell it or, or you know, hear it break or even taste it. Once it goes into your body, in a, the miracle of digestion, that bread and that juice or that wine is broken down and assimilated into your body. It becomes part of you. Jesus is saying, I am more real to you by faith than these outward elements are. I am more real to you by faith and livingly united, assimilated, not in a, a confusion of deification, but in a redeemed life. We have a living union with Christ. We are alive from the dead by faith and regeneration. And what do the Scriptures say about that? It gives us all this wonderful application of being washed in regeneration, of being sprinkled from an evil conscience, of, of having a greater baptism than Noah. <laughs> Not the antitype, but the fulfillment of the type in Christ. And we have an answer of a good conscience. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you alive in faith? Is Jesus your Savior? If you answer yes to all those, it's because of the Holy Spirit who has witnessed within that you are livingly united to Christ. And the, the wonder of the symbol of baptism is greater than any outward man-made rules of washings and modes and, and practices and rituals. Some have tried to turn baptism into a ritual. It's not a ritual. It's a sign and seal of the covenant promises of God in Jesus Christ. And so, when I will occasionally say to you from time to time, improve your baptism, I don't mean that you need to be rebaptized. I mean, think, meditate on what your baptism means. Just like I say, coming to this Lord's Supper, examine yourselves if you're in the faith. Do you take of this bread and you take of this cup in faith? Don't let false guilt hold you back. Confess your sin. That's why we have a, a, a confession of sin corporately and then individually give you time to review in the Holy Spirit to work in your mind and heart to make confession of your sin. Don't have a false piety. Oh, I'm not holy enough to take the Lord's Supper. What you're doing is just resisting repentance. Repent, confess your sin, and take of the Lord's Supper in the hope of Christ. Even as we confess this morning, God who does not keep a list of your sins. Are you keeping a list of your sins? Are you keeping a list of somebody else's sins? Scripture tells us not to. And God doesn't keep a list of your sins. Receive in faith the promise of God that your sins are forgiven and bloodshed is over. You see, Jesus died once on the cross, the just for the unjust, that he might reconcile us to God, that we might be atoned for. So you see, water has taken the place of blood in baptism. Wine or juice has taken, place, has taken the place of blood in the Passover. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that something to celebrate? So I hope that you'll come and celebrate in faith this morning 
as we commune together at the Lord's table. And I delight in saying this is not the table of Brookwood Presbyterian Church. Uh, Here are the conditions that Scripture gives us for our coming to the Lord's table together. That you have been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you are uh, acknowledging the the headship of Christ over His church and a member of a church that believes that Jesus is the Savior and of the new covenant gospel in Jesus. And that you are not resisting confession of known sin. You may be struggling with it. You may be fighting hard. You may feel the guilt of it. That's, that's what the Holy Spirit would have. But receive this Lord's Supper and promise that grace is greater than all our sin. So our hymn of meditation